This week on the Christian Walk Cafe, repentance. What is true repentance, and what does it mean to truly repent? Stay tuned as we examine the true nature of God's call to this action and what it really entails on the Christian Walk Cafe. Well, hello and welcome. It's really great to be back with you for another week, and I appreciate you being here. My name is Keith, and you are listening to The Christian Walk Cafe. This podcast exists to encourage believers and to enlighten the lost to the truth of God's Word and the fact that our time here is so short compared to eternity, and it is of the highest importance that we know Christ and are prepared to meet Him. This week, we're going to take a look at the nature of true repentance. So to start off, let's look at that word. The word repent defined is feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. But it's more than that. Biblically, the term repentance means metanoia, called for throughout the Bible is a summons to a personal, absolute, and ultimate, unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. Though it includes sorrow and regret, it is more than that. In repenting, one makes a complete change of direction, a 180-degree turn towards God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, The Bible declares, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The key word there is turned. In our society today, we hear very little about true repentance. That's sadly true in many of our churches. Repentance simply doesn't sell. It's hard. It's inconvenient. It interferes with our sin and with our lifestyle. It's uncomfortable. For too many people, they may be sorry for what they've done, and they hope they won't do it again. But for the true Christian, repentance is a radical transformation, a turnaround, a walking away from the previous life and going in a new direction. Recently, in my personal Bible study, I was reading in John 8, and I want to read this to you. If you read the Bible, this will be very familiar to you. In fact, if you don't, you've probably heard this quoted many times. John 8, starting in verse 1, They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. This passage gets quoted quite a lot, but for the wrong reasons. I hear countless people quote Jesus as saying, Whoever is without sin cast the first stone. And that is true. It's about casting judgment. It's true we are not the judges, but we are the messengers. If I tell you living a life of sin will lead you to hell, I'm not judging you. I'm not qualified to be the judge. But I am qualified to deliver the warning through that message. It's the same thing as me saying, hey, if you break into that house, you are going to go to jail. I'm not qualified to sentence you to jail. But I know the law, the rules, and I know if you violate that, you will go to jail and the judge will put you there. It's just the same with this passage. But that's a teaching for another day. The important part of this passage when it comes to repentance is while Jesus forgave her, he said something else very important. I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This was not a license to continue her adulterous lifestyle. It was not, hey, I know you feel really bad, now go enjoy your life. It was forgiveness, yes, but it was a command to change her behavior, to repent. The translation of that is literally, leave your life of sin. Lost in this passage are the truths that, number one, Jesus did not ignore the fact there was a sin problem in her life. Number two, Jesus did not gloss over the sin that was present. He dealt with it. And number three, Jesus called it what it was, sin. He did not ignore it. He did not sugarcoat it. And he definitely did not condone it. It was sin that needed to be repented of. Colossians 3, verse 2 and 3 tells us, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not enough to be sorry for your actions. Being sorry or sorrow is certainly the first step in repentance. But it goes so much further than that. The final scripture we're going to look at today is 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10, where it says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This is sorrow that is produced by the Holy Spirit, more so the conviction of the Holy Spirit. True repentance cannot occur without a genuine sorrow, but 
it's not the same thing. They are two separate things, as this passage shows. Repentance proves one's salvation. As an unbeliever, we initially repent of our sin at salvation. As believers, we must repent continually. Yes, we fail. Look at what Paul said to the Romans when he called himself a wretched man. The writer of Hebrews spoke of treating the sacrifice of Christ as something to abuse and trample underfoot if we continue sinning, an attitude of constant sin. It talks about this as insulting the Spirit of grace by continuing to sin willfully. And it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a terrible expectation of divine judgment. Worldly sorrow refers to simply getting caught, feeling an unsanctified remorse or a wounded pride, and it still produces death, not life. True repentance produces a holy desire to grow in grace and live a holy life pleasing to God. It brings crushing sorrow when we fail, but the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows our weaknesses and generously forgives. My prayer, every time when I have prayer time daily, begins first and foremost with gratitude to God for saving me. But then immediately after that, with a plea for forgiveness of sins. While we live in these earthly bodies, sin will continue to inflict us. And we cry out as Paul did and say, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? It's our journey from justification through sanctification to ultimately our glorification. But of course, we know that as we travel this road of sanctification, we eagerly await the day of our glorification when sin no longer entangles us or entices us or has any influence on our life whatsoever. And oh, how we long for that day. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in this week, and I hope to see you back here next time. You can email me directly at thechristianwalkcafe at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear from you. In the future, I may add a social media site or a website so we can communicate that way. But in the meantime, walk this Christian walk with confidence, and I'll see you next week. God bless. God bless.